and welcome inside my chewy head, where this season I'm having a mental workout, talking to mental health experts and finding out exactly what it is that they do for a living. It's goggles on, mouth guards in and minds open as we dive straight into the conversation. Okay, welcome back to the Chewy Head podcast. I am thrilled today to be joined by April all the way from America. Hi, April. Hi. Yes, um, April, obviously you work um, in the mental health sphere. Do you want to give the listeners an idea of kind of what you do in your role? What's your job? I am a professional mental health and substance abuse counsellor. I work um, out of an agency right now, but I am also, I'm expanding to work, starting to work online. Um, What I found was that after being in this field for 13 years, that there is an underlining um, lack of self-esteem. There's an underlining, there's underlining issues with core beliefs, limiting core beliefs. And it's across the board. That's what I found after working in this field that almost every single person that I work with has the same core limiting beliefs. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, that we don't believe that we're good enough and we don't believe that we deserve love, we deserve a good life, we deserve all these things. So I found that after years of doing this, that I just want, I wanted to be able to reach more people. I wanted to be able to heal more people. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> wow. So when you say substance abuse counseling, what do we mean? What would you, what, what kind of defines substance abuse? What would you say that is? Uh, Well, I work with people who actually have addiction to multiple different kinds of substances. And that also coincides with most people that end up with addiction, they have some sort of mental health issue. Right. That is why they have an addiction is because they don't feel good normally, because they don't feel good normally, they are searching outside of themselves for the cure. Yeah. For the fix. So I work with people who have heroin addiction, opiate addiction, cocaine addiction, meth, marijuana, alcohol, all of it. Gosh. So how would you know then if you so someone might be listening and think, well, I drink or I smoke marijuana or I don't know, maybe people, I don't know, recreationally yeah. take drugs. How would they know that they were they were crossing a line into maybe being a drug addict or an alcohol addict? What, what would be the difference? So the difference is that some, a lot of people come to me and say, well, um, I, I just have a beer at night. I don't think I really have a problem. Or maybe they are what we call the weekend warrior, where they work all week, they do their thing all week, but then on the weekend, um, they only drink on the weekend. Yeah. The key is, one, if you're trying to fix your emotional state with a substance, yeah, right? If it's any time that you're trying to fix, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm all these things, that's one of the kind of red flags. The other red flag is that if you can't in life without it. So fishing, I got to have my beer. Bowling, I got to have my beer. Um, Family gatherings, everything that you do starts to incorporate your drug use. And then one of the other keys is not being able to go without it. Right. Right. They can't stop. Okay. So if someone, how would someone find you then? How, what kind of process would there be for someone realizing that they have maybe an alcohol problem or a drug problem? How would they end up meeting you as a therapist? 
Well, currently I work for an agency who, um, you know, they, they either get referred, some of them are referred through the court system. Some of them are just, they have realized that um, they've tried to stop and they can't. They've realized that they're having some sort of withdrawals. Uh, they're having cravings and they'll seek out, you know, substance abuse. Um, for those that are listening, I would suggest just getting a hold of me um, online through personal DM or through my group. But addiction, I have been treating this for, um, like I said, over 13 years now. And it is most people I find, see, in this world, we don't, we teach people how to go to school, how to pass tests, how yeah. to get a job, right? Yeah. But we don't teach them how do I deal with this thing that's inside of me called emotions? Yeah. These emotions that I keep trying to run from. Mm. But I, if I if I try to tell people if I could get you to understand this, um, because people will say, "Well, I did really good, and then this person made me really mad this week, so I had one drink." I said, "Okay, that's okay." But let's look at that. Why did we have one drink? Well, I got really mad. And I said, so what was the drink supposed to do for you? What was supposed to help me get rid of it? And I said, well, trying to get rid of your emotions, trying to run from your emotions is like you trying to run from your own hand. Mm. They're inside of you. Yeah. Where are you going to run? Yeah. It's, you can't just set them on the table right? And, and go. So we have to learn ways to actually cope with them, actually deal with them, um, move them, change them. We can't necessarily get rid of them because that's what we are. Humans, we are one emotion every another. Mm. That's what we, we could be fine. We could be content. We could be sad, but we are literally one emotion after another. It's actually yeah. an emotional state is what it is. And what I do is I teach them to learn how to cope with these emotions, to stop running from them, and to realize that they're not bad. It's not bad to be angry. It's not bad to be sad, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's the long-term emotions that we don't like. So if you have long-term sadness or anger, yeah, that's where the problems come in. Okay. Does it vary depending on which substance that someone is addicted to? Or do you find that it doesn't really matter which substance they're addicted to, they kind of present in the same way in terms of repressing their emotions and things like that? You know, it doesn't matter what kind of um, addiction they have. And, and I've seen the only person so far to date that I have not had is a judge. Right. I have had doctors, nurses, PAs, vets, pharmacists, eye doctors, lawyers the only people and i and it's interesting because i have yet to have as a judge wow is, but i've had i've had probation officers i've had nurses i've had teachers yeah. so it doesn't matter the type of drug mm. the the type of drug only thing that that does tell me is sometimes if i have somebody who has adhd and there's a lot of adult adhd yeah. and it's not treated, they will go towards a depressant, which alcohol, marijuana, these are actually depressants. Yeah. Because they're so hyper and they need help coming down. Right. So that will tell me the type of mental 
health issue I'm looking at. But as far as the substance, it really just depends on the person. And what we call it is, you know, your drug of choice. What is your drug of choice? Yeah. Uh, some people will do opiates and they'll never touch alcohol ever in their life. Mm-hmm. It's just not their drug. So that's interesting. Would you say there's like an age range that you deal with or does it does it tend to be people from all different ages or yeah it see here's the thing about addiction is um and this is one of the things that i teach people i i have seen people teenagers to all the way up to i think the oldest i ever had was about 64 years old and the thing about addiction is that addiction doesn't have a race Mm. it doesn't have a gender doesn't have a bias Yep. It doesn't go to a person and say, you know what? I think your hair's a little too red. I'm going to skip you. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't do, it just literally has no bias whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the main, because people, a lot of people, there's a lot of shame with addiction. Mm. And I explained to them, your, your addiction didn't say, you know, I think you're too tall and you might have just a little too much money for me. Yeah. So I'll go to the next person. Doesn't do that. No. Do you think there's also a myth that, oh, if you're addicted to something, then it, you'll probably be homeless or you'll probably, you know, you're, you won't be holding your life together. But do you see people who actually function, they go to work and then actually they're, they're hiding this huge addiction problem? Does that happen? Yes, that happens often. But I do have to say there is a point where it will take you over it will destroy your life. So there are many people that are what we call functioning um, alcoholics, functioning addicts. And they do, for the most part, maintain their life, their jobs, their family. But what I have found over the years is there is always that, there's always kind of that tipping point or that edge before they go off of, you know, the cliff where it does destroy your lives. And I have seen some very successful people end up homeless because Mm. of it. Um, Now, the ones that uh, are kind of the most frustrating to me are the ones that are really, truly, completely successful, but they have this opiate addiction. And it's because doctors prescribe them Norcos or Vicodin for pain for years, years. Without considering the fact that it's addictive and yeah. Wow. I have several currently that if it wasn't for the fact that they were wrote a script um, for five, six, 10 years, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be in my office. They just wouldn't wow. because they are fully functioning. Um, but they have this addiction that they, they can't, they can't get over. So. Wow. Do you think that there are certain substances which are harder to get over, I suppose, for want of a better phrase than others? Or do you think it, it, it's really the same? I, to tell you the truth, the hardest substance to get over is nicotine. <laughs> right. <laughs> Smoking. Yeah. It is the hardest drug to get over. And why do you it think really that is? is? Because it's, it's kind of like the half-life. The half-life of nicotine is so short. Yeah. So when it goes into the body, it's out of the body within 30 minutes. Yeah. Right. Other drugs last an hour. Some last four hours. Some, you know, marijuana is one that lasts a long time. Yeah. Uh, marijuana is actually the least difficult drug to get off of and has the least amount of withdrawal and side effects. Right. Um, 
then we have like our opiates, alcohol, cocaine, it kind of goes down, but nicotine is actually the worst. And that's the one that people, we don't get treatment for nicotine, right? No. Um, <laughs> so, and there's a whole biological dynamic that's going on in addiction that um, I teach people about. Uh, a lot of people still in the world have this idea that this is a moral issue. This is a right, wrong. Why don't you just stop? But there's actually a whole biological component going on. Mm. And of course, everybody's biological, you know, genetic makeup is different. Mm -hmm. And then also, if you come from a family of addiction, you are much more, that's not a guarantee though, because we've done studies um, of twins Mm -hmm. separated. One becomes an addict, one doesn't. Both came from genetic disposition of addiction. Right. But it does play a factor so do you do you believe that some people have like addictive personalities then absolutely yeah totally yeah um i have several that you know we can get them sober off their substance but then the addiction morphs so then it turns into food or it turns into you know uh work um it just morphs yeah so i have um I don't think you'll mind me saying my dad is a recovering alcoholic and he doesn't drink, hasn't drunk for 10 years now, but he has like a bargain hunting addiction. So he just loves going and like finding things and getting them for really like, we don't need any more food. My mom's like, we don't have anywhere to put it, <laughs> but um, that's, that's his thing. So yeah. Well, it's it. kind of the, the lesser of two evils. So I'll tell people, you know, as long as it's safe and it's sober and it as well doesn't take over your life, okay, let's work with it. But um, the substances will absolutely, it ruins people's lives. It really does. Yeah. Um, uh, not just their but, lives. I think it impacts on the families. Of the, oh, yeah, people. sure. Yeah. It, and that's where um, a lot of people will say, well, it's just affecting me. It's not. A, no, it really does. It affects the whole family, friends, dynamic, it, all of it. But ultimately, what I find is, one, we have the genetic disposition, but two, it's, it's because somewhere along the line, they developed a belief of they're not being good enough. Yeah. Right? That's, that's the core thing. And to me, that's the bigger issue is, and it's something that I have to work on with them. Not only that, because addiction brings a lot of guilt and shame. But I already have this issue over here that started way back. And it always starts in childhood. Very few people actually get limiting beliefs in when they're a teenager or their 20s or 30s. Right. 90% or more actually starts in childhood. So get this limiting. are you saying, so do you, you don't see people then who, let's say they're a bit, they're kind of older, maybe in their 60s or maybe even their 70s who say, you know, I never had a problem until five years ago and then I just developed alcoholism or an addiction to x y and z would you say that actually I do oh right you know I do I have I had a client at one point who um was actually 62 ish right in that and lived their entire life successful yeah successful very successful career and had and did the family thing and then at the 62 years old developed a crack cocaine addiction. Wow. Very odd, right? Really odd, yeah. Yeah. And through the course of working with them, we actually did find through a series of events that happened, there was a divorce and then there was a couple losses 
one was like a dog died, one was like a family member died. So what we actually found was there was a, uh, there was a core belief mm-hmm. of not being good enough, not yeah. being accepted and not being loved, which was triggered by this series of events yeah. that hadn't happened prior. So even at 62 years old, we landed back at this core belief that came from childhood because what happened was, is their dad was not in the picture as a child. Right. So they ended up with this core belief that I'm not good enough and that um, people don't really want or love me. Mm-hmm. That got triggered at 60 years old yeah. with the divorce and the losses. So if you have a core belief that links from childhood that you're not good enough and you're 60 years old or even 30, 20, I don't know, 18, you know, that's the oldest part of yourself, isn't it? The part that you've lived with the longest are those early childhood experiences. So how do you go about changing those core beliefs? Well, first what, um, what I do anyways, is I, I have this, I don't know how to explain it. I have this like knack of All I have to do is just listen to you and it'll tell me where I need to go. It'll tell me, it'll lead me right to it. I I can't explain how I do it. Um, But if you, if you listen to people and you listen closely and you actually pay attention to what they're saying, they'll lead you right to the core belief. Um, And then what I do though, is I make them realize it. I know it. I can sense it. I can hear it, but I make them realize it. So once I get them to realize it, then I say, okay, now let's connect the dots. Mm. So like in my life, um, I never really felt like I was good enough. I never felt like I fit in. My core belief was that nobody loved me. That was my core belief. And that started three, four, five years old. That's when mine started. So what will happen is then I'll go into school and it's a new day of school and I'm standing there and some people are, some kids are over there talking in a little bit of a group. And then there's some over here, but I'm standing over here going, do they want to talk to me? You think they want to talk to me? Mm. No, nope. I'll just stand over here. I'll just find my desk. I'll just, right. That's how it plays out in your life. So I have them connect the dots. Well, where'd that show up at? How did that show up? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we first have to find the core belief. Then we have to connect the dots and see how it's played out in your life. And then once we figure that out, I have them start to change that core belief and realize that that core belief was never really your truth anyways. It was never really your truth in the first place. Yeah. Right. You made it with a little tiny child mind, or perhaps you made it with a teenager mind, which is still not a fully developed mind. Mm. And it's a false belief. Yeah. We all have worth. Yeah. So, and then you start to change that core belief. And then you, I have an exercise that I have them do where I make them um, create a new belief. And then we rewire that into the brain. We rewire the new belief into the brain so what, we do. what kind of what what would be the, the new belief what's an example so yeah I have this exercise that I walk them through and we find the core messages okay yeah. 
we find, and some of them, there's multiple core messages, but usually what you'll find is that if we run through the different areas in your life, your parents, your friends, your school, there'll be a theme. There'll be yeah. like a, a particular theme. So for me, mine was that um, nobody wanted me, nobody loved me. Yeah. And also that I was alone. Yeah. So that's my core belief. So what you do then is after you find that theme, then you create a new, we can call it a mantra. Today's episode is presented by Clark's. Clark's story began almost 200 years ago when Cyrus and James Clark made a slipper from sheepskin. At the time, it was groundbreaking, a combination of invention and craftsmanship that's remained at the heart of what Clark's does. From the very beginning, Clark's has always thought differently. Brilliant ideas are what set Clark's apart. We are teaming up with Clarks and Podgo to bring you up to 30% off on select items, including on the iconic Clarks Desert Boot, by going to podgo.co slash Clarks. That's podgo.co slash Clarks. Don't miss out. So if my core belief is nobody loves me, nobody wants me, and I'm always alone, then I will now create a new mantra of I am wanted, I am loved, and I have support. Yeah. Okay. So we flip it and we create a new mantra. And then I tell them, I want you to say this mantra thousand times a day, Mm -hmm. all day, every day. Yeah. Anytime you get that negative feeling, say the mantra. Yeah. And it's like rewiring your mind to, to, to have that almost like a reflex or something. Yeah. Because see, whenever anything negative happens, we always go back to that initial belief yeah right see nobody wants me there's more proof oh here it is again nobody wants so now what you do is instead of allowing your brain to play the old tape you're going to play the new one Mm. and what will happen is is that old belief which is kind of like if you look at it like a path in the woods if you keep running down the same path it wears down it creates a groove Mm -hmm. right if you stop going down that path and you start going down a new one the old one will kind of grow over Mm -hmm. right so when I create this new mantra and I have you say it like a thousand times a day I'm now creating a new path for the brain to follow yeah that's a really good way of explaining it (laughs) I like that that's very visual I like that so do you think that everyone is capable then of, of changing their core beliefs and everyone's capable of recovering from an addiction? I want to say yes, but they have to be willing to try. Yeah. They have to be willing to be with somebody like you or me who's, who's going to take their hand and walk them down that path mm-hmm. and say, it's going to be okay. It's not always going to be, you know, fun and joyous. but it's going to be okay. And we're going to walk through this together. We're going to get there. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing is there are some people that they're kind of already at the bottom. Yeah. And then when you start digging into their stuff, it kind of makes them sink. Right. For a minute. And they're too afraid of that. They're too afraid. So they don't. Mm. But if there's just that, if there's that desire to gain and have that inner peace, then yes. If you want inner peace and you want to be happy, you can do this. You can absolutely do this. I have seen some of the worst addicts on the planet. Yeah. 
turn their lives around, but it's because they wanted that peace. They wanted that happiness. Yeah. I do think it's possible. Um, some people though, I think that they're, they're just too afraid that it's, it's going to hurt too much or, but I can promise you it, it may not always be fun and you may have some tears, but it is so worth it. Mm. It's so I, worth it. I suppose for some people as well, it's asking them to look at maybe some of the social circles that they're hanging out in and the environment oh, that they're yeah. in. And some people that's, that's a lot to have to change, isn't it? Cause I mean, yeah. Do you find that in like in your work that people come in and they've had a bad week and it's partly because they've reconnected with a friend or met with a family member who's perhaps not necessarily encouraging them in, in the right direction? There's a lot of people that I have worked with that the addiction runs rampant in their families. Right. So they literally have to create a new family. Yeah. And they do it, especially if they get into, you know, what I suggest is either you either get into like the recovery world, mm -hmm. which is the AA, the NA, yeah. or you get into the spiritual world mm -hmm. and you do that. But some of these people, it's not everybody, but there are some that they literally have to create a new family. Yeah. You absolutely have to change. You remember when mom said, Hey, I don't like that person. I don't want you hanging around them. Yeah. Mom was right. She was really <laughs> right. And you looked at mom was like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Guess what? She really did. She knew what she was talking about. Yeah. And I say that because I have five girls. Mm -hmm. So I've heard that from all of them. Yeah. And uh, that is, you will absolutely have to change the people that you're hanging around. And if they're, if they're addicts, they're not true friends. Anyways, we think they are, but they're not. Um, they're using buddies. There's a difference, right? And the other thing that I have people do that it's quite an exercise is I have people say goodbye to their drug. I have them actually break up with their drug. Wow. Because your drug becomes your friend. Mm -hmm. It becomes your partner. It's always there. It never argues, never talks back. Yeah. It's the comfort that it's you can go friend. to. Yeah. Yeah. But I have them realize friends don't steal your money mm. they don't take your health they don't break up your families they don't steal your jobs mm. it's not a friend right? yeah. so I have them break up with their drug too which is is quite a process yeah that's another thing yeah. I suppose it, just like if you had a toxic relationship with someone you know if, if you've been in that relationship for a while and you were used to those patterns and the behaviors it's going to be harder to break up with them I suppose yeah yeah. So yeah. you're talking about AA um, mm -hmm. and you were talking about, I know in AA they refer to having like a higher power, don't they? Would you say that that's important that everyone has, acknowledges maybe that they aren't the centre of, you know, that poem by William Ernest Henley, like I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, which I suppose is, is a lovely sentiment. But actually, are we always in control of our own lives? Like a lot of the time, to some extent, we have to acknowledge maybe that we aren't and that the world is going to make decisions that we can't control like people dying people being whatever so do you think that having a higher power or, or a sense being a part of something bigger is important in recovery well I can tell you that in the addiction field it's in the mental mental health as well but in the addiction field what I have found over the years is that those who are successful number one they have a support system whether that be their family or that be AA, NA, uh, or church, yeah. 
they have a support system. That's one of the first things. The next thing is that they make recovery their life. Okay. It becomes their life and it becomes first. Yeah. It becomes first. And most important, they protect their recovery. Okay. Then um, I have found, and the studies show that those who have some sort of spiritual belief mm-hmm. are more successful. So whether that is you believe in God or Buddha or Allah, doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but they have some sort of spiritual belief. They are, because it's somebody, something to take your biggest problems to. Yeah. It's something to rely on, something to where you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. There's something bigger than you yeah. that can help you. Yeah. And as far as are we in charge of our own life, um, there is the element of free will. Of we are given free will as a soul here. So here, what you are is actually, you are a soul that is having a human experience. Okay. You're not a human trying to get spiritual. Mm -hmm. That's not what you're doing. You're not a human getting spiritual. You are a soul having a human experience and you are re-remembering who you truly are and who you truly are is a part of source. That's who you are. You want to call source God or creator or the frog. We can do that, Mm -hmm. but you are part of source. And there is an element of free will to meaning I can come here and I can choose to be a doctor. I can choose to be a plumber. I can choose to be a therapist. I have these elements of free will. And it's more about as far as like, does everybody's tires go flat? Yes. The tires go flat. Does everybody lose a job at some point? Yes. Everybody loses a job or loses a family member. So the key is not in trying to control those things. Mm -hmm. The key is learning how to practice acceptance. It is what it is. The plate is already broke. You already dropped it. You already broke it. The tire is already flat. The faster you can move into acceptance, the faster you can have peace. So the key, the power actually resides in how you handle what happens in life. Mm. Not in what happens. You can't control what happens. No. But it's how you handle what happens. And the key to handling what happens is acceptance. It is yeah. what it is. When I was in hospital, there was a quote on the wall that said, um, it isn't about controlling the weather. It's about learning to dance in the rain. <laughs> I think that, that yeah. links to what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Because it's already raining. That's it. Yeah. It's raining. You know, uh, I, we don't have that ability to snap our fingers and stop. I wish we did, but we don't. <laughs> so you have to learn to practice. And that's one of the bigger, bigger things that I teach is practicing acceptance. You would be amazed if you knew how many people are so, they're so riddled with anxiety and worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, worry has never in the history of ever solved a problem. No. It's never solved a problem. Creates problems. It does, <laughs> it does not solve problems. Yeah. So one of the bigger things I try to teach people is to have that inner peace and to have that accept that now acceptance does not mean that you like it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you like what's happening. It means it is what it is. Yeah. I don't have to like it, 
Okay. I don't have to like that. I'm on my way to an appointment. I'm running kind of late and my tire goes flat, mm-hmm. but I have to accept that it is that that happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I imagine if you are trying to recover from an addiction and as a result of that recovery or as part of that recovery, I know uh, in AA, for example, they have, I think in, in, in NA as well, they have the 12 steps. And I think part of that is is making amends, isn't it? Making amends with the people that you have wronged or that you've hurt as part of your um, addiction. And I suppose what might be really difficult is if you are trying to recover and then as a result of that, you're having to face some of the, the things that you've done and some of the damage that perhaps your addiction has caused and not being able to do anything about that. You can't control whether someone chooses to forgive you, can you? Um, I imagine that's, is that yeah. something that comes up a lot in your work? All the time, yes. Yeah. The step four is one of the most difficult steps. Mm-hmm. Step four is, is by far one of the more difficult steps. I always tell people, number one, take your time doing step four there's some people sponsors that try to like rush people through or there's some people that try to rush through don't do that Mm -hmm. take your time with it because for one we don't want to do it again (laughs) we don't want (laughs) to do that step again right Mm -hmm. it's not a fun step so I always say you know take your time with it do it completely try to get everybody on the list that you need to get on the list And there's also some people that it either is not possible or not feasible or safe to make amends to. There are some people you should not reach back out, you know, to the drug dealer or somebody uh, that you stole a thousand dollars from. So there are some people that you will only do that mentally or by writing a fake letter. Right. Um, But that is the step where a lot of guilt and shame and remorse come up with. So this is what I do. This is one of the things that I teach people is you have to stop judging yourself based off of today for what you did in the past. Okay. What you know right now versus this morning is not the same. Yeah. You do not have the same information that you have right now that you had this morning. It's different. You and that person that did those things are not the same person. Mm-hmm. You don't know the same things. You're not in the same space. Yeah. Are you in the same body? Sure. We'll give you that. But you're not the same person. Yeah. That person is not well. So if I was to say to you, you know, there's a person over there that's not well, go beat them up. They're not well. They don't make good decisions. They're not feeling well. They're not very strong. You should go beat them up. And they look at me every time and I'm like, well, that's what you're doing to yourself. Yeah, You were not well, but you're beating, beating yourself up every day. Yeah, so We create a level of forgiveness for the addict because the addict and the real you are not the same person. So I suppose in a way, when you're doing step four, which by the way is to make amends with people that you have harmed or wronged as part of your addiction. I suppose if you, maybe the first thing you need to do in order to do that step and for it to go well, I suppose, is, is to forgive yourself and know that actually... Even it doesn't really matter what the other person says because you know that you've forgiven yourself. Is it, am I onto something? Is that is that right? Yes, that's yeah. part of it, and that's yeah, that's one of the things that I teach them, um, and AA teaches them in NA as well. It's not whether the people accept your apology; it's the fact that you did it. Yeah. The fact that you said, "Hey, I just want to let you know that I'm sorry." You have now done your karmic part. You've done your part. Yeah. They can accept it or not. Now that is on them. 
but you've at least went and said, Hey, I just want to let you know. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for the, and be genuinely sorry, yeah. you know, that you did those things, but at anything after that, and then including yourself, that is one of the bigger things that I do make sure they, ha- you have to have a level of self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You just have to, yeah, right. to be well, you have to. Absolutely. I know you mentioned having a higher power and or being in, involved in the church or having some sort of spiritual resonance. And I know that you're also a spiritual healer. And I wondered whether you would, would be willing to talk about that maybe a bit. Sure. So what is a spiritual healer? <laughs> it's somebody that heals on the soul level. So we go beyond the material and I'm i I'm a counselor and I have this job and, and uh, it's more down to the essence of who you are right down to the soul level right? so so how would you heal someone's spirit or heal their soul well one of the bigger things that i, I mean we can do energy work um you know like i'm trained in uh actually reiki healing which a reiki master i'm also trained in um, a healing energy called amadeus healing energy okay uh, can, I can do um, energy work on the chakras. We have the 12 chakras, the seven main chakras. We can do, can do energy work there. But one of the bigger things that I like to focus on is getting people to understand that they have innate worth. Mm-hmm. And that comes from the fact that you're a soul. Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do with what you do, what you have who your friends are, who your family is, your money, you have innate worth and you don't have to do anything to be worthy, mm. right? We have, the world still has this philosophy that, well, what do you do for a living? Yeah. What kind of job do you have? You know? Yeah. And my job is to go in and say, guess what? You don't got to do anything to have worth. Mm-hmm. Nothing. You still have worth. The way that I explain this to people is this, because I have, I have my five girls and then I had to take on my niece for a little while and I have 12 grandkids. That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> so been around babies a lot, a yeah. lot. So I say to people, what do babies do? What do they do? Cry. They cry. They spit up. They drool. They throw up. Mm-hmm. They pee their pants. They poop their pants. Yeah. They don't go to bed when they're supposed to. They wake up all night crying. They scream. They. So if I was to say, you know what? Hey, I got this person for you. And they, they cry and they scream and they throw up and they puke. You want to, you'd be like, whoa, what? But back up. <laughs> oh, they got really. But how much are babies worth? Yeah. They're like priceless, aren't they? Because of their, because all the wrong things. Yeah. <laughs> you want the screaming, crying, drooling, puking person? No. <laughs> what is are you kidding? But they're they're worth everything. You don't have to do anything to be worthy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's not where your worth lies. And that's one of the main components to teaching people down to the soul level that you have this innate worth. Mm. And that's really where I mean I love the addiction stuff. When I get into this, this is where my passion's at. This is where it's like, oh, yes, yeah. I can teach you this. 
now you know we're really on to something so my cat is fine <laughs> iris that's all um, right wow it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and i can tell that you're an absolute well of knowledge and, and you have so much insight into uh, definitely mental health and addiction and spiritual healing even i'm just wondering i always kind of end my episodes by asking the person who i'm talking to what would be and it's quite a hard question <laughs> so i'm sorry <laughs> uh, in advance but what would you say has been the biggest learning curve of your career in in therapy the biggest learning curve that is kind of a hard question what is the biggest learning curve i think especially working in the field of addiction you know, because I don't actually even remember if I had these biases before or not, but we're all the same. Yeah. We're all the same. We all have the same needs. We all just want to belong. We all just want to be loved. Yeah. We all just want to be heard. Mm. And that's one of the, you know, the things that um, we all want to feel connected and feel whole and feel peaceful. And it doesn't really seem to matter who I'm working with across the board, whether I'm in the Reiki or I'm in the addiction or I'm in, it's the same desire. Yeah. We are all the same. We all want the same thing. I don't care what you look like, who you are. And I think working within the addiction, um, that has helped me to see that even more. It's kind of like Mother Teresa said that where, um, they asked her one day, you know, what was she doing and, and how did she connect to God? And she said, I go out into the streets of uh, Calcutta yeah. and I look at and I see God in all of his designs, all of his costumes Yeah. every day. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what it, um, I think is the biggest thing that it's taught me. Mm. Is we all want the same thing. That's so interesting thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure if people wanted to find you um, I know you said you do some online work so if someone was listening and they were interested in reaching out where would they find you uh Facebook is actually my primary source I have all of these social medias you know the Instagram the LinkedIn but actually Facebook is is the primary quickest fastest way to get a hold of me I do have my personal profile and I have a group um and then I also have a program that I've just recently launched teaching all of these things we just talked about. Yeah. But if you do want to get a hold of me, Facebook is the fastest way to do it. Brilliant. That's the best way. I'll make sure that your information is below in the in the description. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. And uh, you're welcome. If you're listening, I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Next week, I'm joined by Liam, who is not only a martial arts specialist, a TED talker, and someone who's written their own novel, he is also a CBT therapist and hypnotherapist, and we'll be getting into that next week. See you then.